Welcome to another episode of the Nice TESOL podcast, Shifting Teaching Paradigms. Every year, Nice TESOL hosts a conference where teachers, researchers, and administrators can collaborate, receive essential professional development, and connect with the purpose of enriching the lives of the students we educate. Every month leading up to the conference, we will have a featured guest who will shed light on this year's conference theme. So when I think about changing that paradigm is moving away from what is good for adults, what is comfortable for adults, and doing everything necessary, right, to create an environment, a school climate where it is for the students, by the students, with the students. And I don't think we're prepared to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard Ruth B. Turner, who we are fortunate enough to have with us today. Ruth is on the Board of Regents and is also one of the keynote speakers for our conference coming up November 3rd to the 5th. So make sure that you register and come out to hear her speak. So Ruth, why don't you tell us about your current role in education and what led you to that role? Uh, sure. Thank you uh, for having me, uh, giving me this opportunity to talk with you and your audience. Uh, so currently, I am a, a member of the New York State Board of Regents. And uh, as many things in my life, it sort of found me <laughs> versus uh, necessarily me finding it. Um, there was a, a vacancy for our region, and uh, I really was not aware. I just had left the city school district. I was taken on some uh, really uh, major consulting jobs and was extremely busy. And I got numerous phone calls from individuals in the community who really wanted me to consider um, applying or you know being appointed to join. And I, as I said, I really was not interested, but there were some really folks that I had respected and knew my desire to serve and improve educational outcomes for all students. So really at the last minute, I kind of threw my name in there, not really expecting that anything would come out of it because I really highly respected the four other individuals who were also being considered. Um, and long and behold, they were like, you know, we choose you and you're appointed. I served the one-year term of the individual who uh, left uh, to take another role and then just recently, I am appointed for a five-year term, which starts start in April. Okay, great. Well, congratulations. You know, I often think that that's how things work, that, you know, well, it's all about what we are putting out there and our passion about whatever work we're doing that really starts to generate kind of a buzz. And then these types of things really find us. So I think that that happens often. Um, now you mentioned um, your work with the school district. Uh, you're talking about a Rochester City school district, correct? Yes. I spent okay. um, about mm -hmm. almost 14 years of my career in the Rochester City School District. Um, I started out first as a school social worker. So my background is clinical social work. And I've always had a, a desire and a passion uh, to serve in the educational uh, arena and using um, my clinical uh, skills. And so I landed a job. Again, it was sort of found me in a way. I, I was doing community um, work, working with uh, marginalized communities around racial equities and um, economic um, justice. 
And then this sort of like found me uh, because that individual who was running that department heard about me and figured, thought I would, I would really enjoy school social work. So I started out as a school social worker and I did that for about five years. And she was actually getting ready to retire and said, you know, the first day I met you, I wanted you to take over the department when I retired. And um, at that point, because I was uh, in a school district and very passionate about education and really wanted to make contributors changing some of the systemic issues that I, that I was aware of, in between that time, I did decide to get my master's in education administration. And so long and behold, this opportunity came to be about, and I became director of school social work and school counseling. I did that for a couple of years and then got promoted to executive director of student support services, which included those two departments, but also multiple other departments and really allowed me to develop programs and services uh, to best serve our, our students. And then I served as uh, chief of student support services and social emotional learning for a couple of years under uh, three superintendents. And then in um, 2020, uh, for many reasons, uh, decided that I was not as effective as I had hoped to be in my standards and really sensed that it was time for me to um, do something else. So I left uh, in, in the end of June of 2020. Uh, it, it is, I'm still very connected. Uh, the school district is my passion. I really enjoyed working with the families and and students of that community. And I'm sure maybe eventually you'll circle back there. But um, I did leave and started really working with my own with my own company dealing with providing quality mental health opportunities for communities of color and impoverished communities, and also doing a lot of work around um, anti-racism and uh, uh, equity diversity with school districts and a lot of work around restorative practice as a way of building community in schools and reducing, uh, reducing violence and making sure that students are more connected to the school environment and that they have agency and voice and our true partners partners in the in that leadership experience. Uh, so that's where I'm at at this stage of, of my life along with being a member of the Board of Regents. So Ruth, it sounds like you've had an incredible journey and really a lot of uh, important work, important milestones along the way there. And um, definitely a lot of the things that you have said uh, really ties into the theme of our conference this year about uh, shifting teaching paradigms, about um, you know having more uh, inclusive uh, and dynamic practices within uh, the school district, the school settings. And I really, you've said so much that I really would like to talk to ask you about. Um, but I think that I'm going to start off with, um, you mentioned systemic issues. And so one of the things I see here uh, that you did while you were at the school district was adopting restorative justice initiatives, justice initiatives in terms of student discipline. And I really wanted to know a little bit more about what that entailed because uh, student discipline, this is, you know, it, it's really a topic that's uh, kind of near and dear to me uh, because of the methods of discipline that I was subjected to um, as a as a child uh, uh, attending public school uh, in the Bronx. Um, so, you know, I'm really curious as to how you went about um, dealing with or, or kind of maybe restoring 
um, this concept of discipline for the students? Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of a background. When I was in a building working along with my building administration, I really felt burnt out. Like I, I felt like uh, every time, you know, I heard a student name over the radio, I would run to intervene because I wanted to make sure, you know, it, I, I really felt like I was taking out one fire after the other and I got really burnt out. And I remember telling my principal, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, continue to do this. And he was like, no, no, we need you. Why don't you go on a conference? We have a little bit of money. Go on a conference, you know, for a couple of days, get refreshed, you know, give you a different perspective. And I sort of, I said, that's a great idea. And I sort of just picked a conference because it was a particular time that I, I could go. And I ended up in some place called um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. I went to a conference that literally changed my perspective changed my career, my life, my output. I know that sounds really like wow, exaggerated. <laughs> and it was uh, the international um, IRRP, International um, Institute of Restorative Practices. And I went to this three-day conference that was like, and, and I had always, I didn't recognize I was a restorative leader or restorative person until I went there, but it clicked and it agreed with me. I said, this is this is how we should be interacting with students, with our staff. You know, we, this whole idea of a restorative framework, restorative mindset, and it just really re-energized me. And I came back to my, to my particular building with this idea of I'm going to teach my building about restorative practice and we're going to change our systems here and, and so forth. And we did within two years, we did, it got to a point where our suspension data was almost, almost non-existing. It, it got so much so that one day my principal looked at me and said, what do we do? We're kind of bored because we were so used to, you know, taking out fires, doing mediations, you know, calling mm. parents that we really was like it was a wonderful place to work and be at. And the data was really compelling. And I had a secret desire at that point to say, how do I get how do I introduce this district wide? So it was for me, it's a mid-sized school district. Uh, you know, in this area, it is the largest school district. At that point, I think we had about almost 30,000 students. We're now down to about 25,000. And the opportunity for me to go to central office came. And that was one of the reasons why I took it, because I figured that I'm closer, right, to the source of, of, um, of the highest level of leadership, hopefully access to some funding. And I just made it my mission to talk people's ears off about this thing, restorative practice. And, and I think it was a combination of we had hit a ultimate high, highest, highest suspension uh, data in our district. Uh, I mean, things were just becoming really, really unbearable. Teachers were blaming students. You know, the community was blaming teachers. Uh, there was just so much disconnect, a lot of discipline issues, a lot of disconnection. I think at that point, to be honest, the district was sort of desperate for an answer. And I was sort of raising my hand and I said, I got to answer. I got to answer. And I think they just, at that point, to be honest, felt like they had nothing else to lose. And at that time, that superintendent uh, gave me some financial resources uh, to start. So I got a couple of my colleagues as uh, teachers on assignment. It was only five or six of us and really spent that first year trying to help people understand what is restorative practice. So the whys versus this is something that you have to do. And I was very adamant that I wanted to build relationships and not make it a top-down uh, philosophy, like you must you know, implement restorative practice, but really have conversations with teachers and school leaders to tell them why this was different. 
and why down the road, how this is going to save time and improve academic outcomes and build better relationships. And that's what we did. So we got schools to join the journey voluntarily. And people said people are not going to do it voluntarily. The first year we had 15 out of our 50 schools and we only had resources to really support 10, but we managed and every year grew out, uh, then went to training students right, how to be um, restorative ambassadors in, in their buildings, how to take responsibility for the school climate and culture, how to make demands of the system. If it was not a restorative environment, how do we assess whether our spaces are restorative? Uh, and we really embarked on just a great journey, which led us to revise our student code of conduct, which was a whole community effort really the community was really supporting that work, both parents, community members, students, uh, even though there was resistance within the system. And we changed our student of code of conduct to make it one of the most restorative. We took out any language that uh, criminalized students um, and made it completely restorative in terms of how we were endeavoring to build community and interact with one another. So it, it, we just accomplished a lot, you know what I mean, in a relatively uh, short period of time. Right, I was gonna say, it sounds like you've had uh, excellent results um, you know, with, this, with these restorative practices. And um, you just mentioned one of the facets of restorative practice in terms of uh, taking out a language that is criminal, criminalizing the students. Uh, and I'd, I'd really like you to, if you could just explain another one of these restorative practices uh, certainly. So um, for folks who may not be familiar with restorative practice, we talk about this idea of, uh, you know, there's a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So one end of it is this heavy, heavy work of community building. The other end of it is the restorative justice, which is the responsive, right? When there's been harm done, when quote unquote rules have been broken, when norms have been broken, what do we do about it, Right. So one of the things that we, we really uh, encourage teachers to do was spend, if it, even if it's once a week, five, 10 minutes, right? Really getting to know your students and allowing your students to know you. So we would do these things that we call circle up time. And the magic mm. about a circle is when the idea of restorative practice, that when we're in a circle, we're all equal. It doesn't matter if you're the teacher. It doesn't matter you know who you are, the principal. We all respond to the same question. Um, and nobody answer is wrong as their perspective. So we just started with small community building circles where simple things like if you, one of my favorites, if you could be a superhero, what, what, if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? And you got to see so much and get to know so much of your students. You know, we've heard responses like, I wish I had the power to heal because I've seen so much trauma and violence in my life. Um, mm. You know, I wish I had the ability to make money because I would make sure that there's not one person that was hungry. Um, I mean, just you just get into so much of, of learning simple things like what's your favorite food activities that build commonalities. And what students love is that they begin to see their teacher as a human being, not just my teacher, but someone who 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 has hobbies. Right who has uh, stories like sharing stories, like tell us your most embarrassing moments, right? So it really built a sense of community and connection in each of those classrooms. And what we know science has shown on social science is that when we feel a connection, we're less likely to harm each other. So naturally you see a decrease in, in, in negative behavior, 
right? We're, we're more empathetic. We're more understanding. We can leverage relationships, right? Uh, to say, hey, don't do that. That hurts my feelings. And most of the times, because that that uh, investment has been made in building that relationship, people will respond, right, in a more positive way. So we really spent, there's a rule called 80-20, spend majority of your time, 80% of your time building community. So when the time comes to address wrongdoing, right, we've we could capitalize on that relationship to address wrongdoing. So I would often get called into a classroom and I would walk over to the student. I would whisper something to the students so other students wouldn't hear it. Walk out one day, the teacher was like, what do you tell these kids that when they're quote unquote in trouble and, and they come and you come in and, and take them out? I said, I just whisper in, the, in their ears, you know, I really want to help you and I want to talk to you. And uh, could you please come with me? And I said, and I expect them to come with me because I built relationships. I don't look back. You know, I don't ask twice. <laughs> and I said, yeah. and I said, simply because of that relationship, they know I care about them. They know that I love them. And they know because of that, I'm going to hold them to a high level of accountability, not by punishment, but hey, let's talk about that, right? Uh, what, what is wrong in the relationship that you think that's okay to do that? And it's a, it's a totally different way of seeing it because, and kids later on would ask, just, just suspend me. This is too much, right? Because it's a high level of accountability. Mm. I just want to go mm. through my two days, come back. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be mindful about other people. I don't want to process and talk, but we made a commitment to do that over and over again. Um, so that is sort of the various, you know, different ways that individual could work through a restorative framework. Okay, excellent. Um, I, I'm sure that our listeners really, I, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, those really clear examples, I can really um, get a really strong sense of how um, these restorative practices really work uh, within the schools. And it's really interesting because it's definitely more of a proactive rather than reactive approach. And like you said, I mean, the students um, had become so used to this reactive approach, like, okay, well, uh, you did this. So now our reaction is we're going to suspend you. We're going to uh, you know, take you're going to have to be out of classes for a few days or whatever it is. And I, I feel like as students, maybe they have gotten so used to that, that um, it, it, sometimes when you make these types of shifts, it's, you know, I mean, obviously it's difficult at first. I mean, that's the whole thing about uh, making a shift, right? Is at first it, it causes uh, uh, maybe a little bit of discomfort, but it seems as though, of course, at the end of that shifting, you've come out of it with a really positive result and uh, not having to do so much of the reactive sort of discipline um, as was happening before. So um, the next thing I kind of wanted to touch on was this idea of emotional learning. And uh, does that tie into these restorative practices? Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this uh, notion of social emotional learning, right? First of all, I, I always tell people all learning is social emotional learning, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's negative <laughs> social emotional learning, but mm -hmm. we we all learn, right, in the context of, of relationship. If you ask any learner, right? I don't care if they're adults in, in, in college and I'm, a, and I'm an adjunct professor at two local colleges, uh, right? 
uh, students learn better and do better when there is a sense of, of community, right? So social emotional learning is this idea that not only should we teach students math, reading, writing, all those important skills, but we should also teach them the social emotional competencies like self-awareness, uh, self-regulation, uh, right? Um, uh, being aware of, of relationships and the umbrella restorative practice allows you, right? Uh, to uh, be mindful of social emotional learning in those uh, prompts, in those circles. Uh, so it's it's a good way to promote social emotional learning uh, within um, within the arena of, of classrooms, right? Uh, so it's been really effective to have those explicit right um, instruction. We also uh, you could also do restorative practices through something that we call academic circles. So although you're, you're teaching a lesson, and this works really well for, um, you know, when we talk about social emotional learning curriculum or making sure we're teaching those competencies, is it's a high level of engagement and this whole protocol and process that, uh, that goes with that. But uh, being mindful that because so much of our social emotional learning work is done outside of the, of the regular curriculum when really best practices, it should also be embedded in the curriculum. So when we're teaching, you know, English, we should have SEL um, competencies built in into that. But for most of us, that doesn't really happen. So mm. it allows us during the circling up time, right, to begin to promote uh, those social emotional competencies. Like, so, uh, you know, this, the prompt might be, and it's always age appropriate, you know, we've done it with kindergarten all the way up to 12th graders. When you're really upset or disappointed, what, what do you do? Right. So we all respond in a circle. Right. Um, and it's funny because when you do this with, with adults, the responses are very similar also. And <laughs> that gives an idea. Right. Where we're all at. And then that allows you to say this. this the follow up question may be, is, is that something you want to change? Right. So there's so many ways to use restorative practice to promote social emotional learnings. And it's all about uh, developing those circle scripts. Right. That directly, explicitly teach those skills. Great. I mean, I really like this. I like all of this because it's definitely, it definitely speaks to viewing everyone in the school arena in a more holistic manner, right? Instead of just, okay, we're here, our focus is academic, and that's the end of the story. It's definitely a more holistic look, which I think, unfortunately, wasn't the case <laughs> several several right. years ago um, right but we also know right you could be the brightest person right you could be a genius when it comes to math you can be an excellent reader writer right but if you don't have those uh internal and external skills you're not going to be successful unless you work in isolation for yourself by yourself right you're going to have to learn how to work with a team you're going to have to learn to understand and regulate your emotions right so that when you're in a workplace you know you're not you're not doing things that are inappropriate or things that are going to get you fired so oftentimes when initially when i would hear pushback from educators say i'm just a math teacher you know what i mean you're asking me to be a therapist i'm just i'm just a reading teacher i said no these are these are skills that even though people think we're born with them, we, we learn them, right? And as educators, we have a responsibility to teach the whole person. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. so they can be successful in mm -hmm. all areas of their life. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 
speaking of learning through learning emotionally, I, I really wanted to understand you're doing such excellent work. And I really wanted to understand if your experience, because you came here to the U.S. as a political refugee. So uh, I would really like to know how that experience may have influenced uh, the type of work that you ended up doing. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I think it absolutely, absolutely impacted uh, that. Not only uh, is my experience as a political refugee coming to this country with my parents and my siblings with absolutely nothing except the clothes on our back, like literally, and having spent a year in a refugee camp in Sudan prior to that, landing in New York City housing projects, right? With, with Even though my parents were semi-educated back home, absolutely did not apply in the United States, not understanding the language. Uh, and it was actually because we had a resettlement worker named Maria, who was actually a social worker, who was just a breath of fresh air, who, who did so much to help our family get acclimated to this new culture that I remember being 11, 12 years old. And I said, what do you do? She goes, I help people. I said, no, you, there's doctors, there's teachers. What is your job cost? She said, I'm a social worker. And I looked at her, I said, one day I'm going to be a social worker. And, and, and I was. But also being educated in New York City school systems, right? And education being highly important to my family um, now that we're in the United States, right? The expectation to go be the first one to go to college, you know, not just get your bachelor's, but your master's, you know, get as much education as you possibly can. Uh, that also influenced. And once I experienced a subpar education, honestly, uh, I realized mm -hmm. that not everybody in this country is afforded the same quality education. So that also kindled my passion around educational justice. So I've been really fortunate to be able to combine both my love for the work and the field of social work and education and to be able to do that work hand in glove. Wow, that really says a lot that as an 11 year old, you were, you wanted to be very particular about now what exactly is your job title? I think that that really says a lot. Um, really says a lot. Okay, so um, as I mentioned, our theme uh, is shifting teaching paradigms, examining inclusive dynamic practices. How do you really interpret this? Uh, again, a lot of your work really speaks to this very clearly, but what was your thought when you saw that this was the theme of the conference? Uh, you know, what, what came to mind when you, when you read this? It really resonated with me because I, you know, one of, of uh, my qualities that people love and also hate is I'm a very honest, transparent person. And um, I, I think these structures have existed for a very long time, but they're deliberate and they serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, there is no reason, <laughs> no reason on earth why we have poverty in this country why our educational systems are so uh, vastly different depending where your zip code is. There's, mm -hmm. no, there's no reason for it. So being really clear to call out that this is an intentional system, right? It's, design, it's doing what it's designed to do. Uh, so I think a change in that, in that paradigm is if we honestly, as educators, as lawmakers, would really think about the children, Right. And said and, and said to ourselves, number one, hear the voice of children. What is it that you want, especially in educational spaces? Right. And then be willing to give up the power. Right. And to be able to implement those. And they're very simplistic. Right. 
uh, I don't believe any kid. Uh, suspension has to be something really as absolute re last resort, right? Especially for things that are like disrespect, you know, and so forth. Uh, so thinking to ourselves, like, even though we have preponderance of evidence that tells us how harmful suspension is, why do we continue to suspend primarily black and brown children or children in urban schools? We have to ask ourselves those difficult, uh, you know, questions. And then we also have to recognize that we have to change the way we engage and teach, right? Our curriculum has to be dynamic, right? It has to incorporate uh, uh, the world in which our students live in today, right? So we can anchor, right, the learning with their experiences and they can be excited about uh, coming to school. Some of the most profound educators that I have uh, met in my life have been those individuals who have come out their own comfort in the ways they teach, right, and immerse themselves in what is the culture speaking to their students currently and bringing that to the classroom so that students are excited to learn and school is a place that they want to be at and be a part of. So when I think about changing that paradigm is moving away from what is good for adults, what is comfortable for adults, and doing everything necessary, right, to create an environment, a school climate where it is for the students, by the students, with the students. And I don't think we're prepared to do that or we're willing to do that. Well, I certainly hope that through discussions like these, through conferences where we are highlighting uh, these issues, and I believe that these issues have definitely, of course, over the last couple of years, really been coming to the forefront. And I, again, I mean, I really hope that there will be a seismic shift. I mean, everything, especially in education for some reason, uh, seems to take its time. But I, I'm really hoping that, um, it, that there will be a seismic shift uh, after some time. Um, I, yeah, and we, and we, I mean, if we, didn't, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't do the work, right? And when I, say, <laughs> right, right. When I say we're not ready for that, I'm not talking about pockets. I'm talking about as a system, right? Mm. So you do have to sometimes overtake and dismantle a system that is not right. effective. And that's where I'm like, we're not completely ready to do that holistically. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. you know, there were times where I would tell uh, educators, right, if they were getting resistance, you know what? Just close your door, right? And you do, right? You become that excellent teacher for that student, even though that the whole system may not be uh, ready for it. So I, I do have belief in that, but I think we're going to need to be more aggressive and mm -hmm. have a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't really see that sense of urgency. So in the community that I work in and live and serve, Every week, it seems like I'm hearing of a young person being shot, you know, being killed or students graduating from high school and still living in poverty and not having opportunities or not being prepared to go to college. That's unacceptable. Right. And it's something that, again, the outside world uh, looking looking from the outside at the at the U.S., um, they wouldn't really think. I mean, you, you really wouldn't think that. Again, there, there's so much disproportion in terms of the education here. Um, and as you noted, um, as, as someone not from the U.S. coming into the U.S., I'm sure you had certain expectations that were, that were not met. And so uh, I, I'm really hoping that we can come to that place of that I believe the rest of the world really sees the U.S., uh, you know, as this powerhouse and, and doesn't realize really 
uh, a lot of the 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 intrinsic kind of issues that are going on here in terms of education, in terms of poverty, et cetera. So um, I really appreciate you taking out the time to talk about uh, the work that you're doing. And I'm really looking forward to having you speak at our conference. And before we go today, um, I would really, there's really two things I would like to ask you before we go today. So one of them is, uh, I mean, it sounds like there's just, just so much that you're able to get from the work that you do, but is there something that you can kind of pinpoint as the most fulfilling part uh, of the work that you're doing at this point? Uh, I, I, at this point, I think the most fulfilling part for me has been being able to work with students and educators, right, um, uh, to help them embrace, uh, whether it's restorative practice, right, making sure that we are engaged in anti-racist uh, curriculum, um, culturally responsive uh, uh, teaching and learning, uh, so it's been really exciting to be able to have the freedom and to interact with different uh, organizations, different uh, school districts, students uh, to really, in a larger scale, sort of share my passion that is evidence-based and, and hoping to also help impact those systems, not just in isolation, the systems that I worked in directly. So that has been really uh, rewarding. Do I miss, like you know, working with students on a daily basis. I think that's always been my passion. That is something that I, that I do miss, but I also recognize is important, right? To, to um, impact more systems in a, in a, in a, in a larger way. Um, and I think that's also what the Board of Regents affords me to do with my colleagues is to really look at educational policies and, and really evaluate whether they're equitable. And if there's some things that we need to do differently on a policy level so that we can help students succeed. Okay, great. And so finally, where can people find you if they want to touch base, if they want to, uh, or do you have any projects coming up, uh, anything that you want to make our audience aware of if they want to follow you and follow all this incredible work that you're doing? Uh, sure. So uh, the best way to get a hold of me if anybody's interested is my email, which is very simple. It's Ruth Turner. 168 at gmail.com. And I also have uh, Twitter and uh, all the social media uh, handles under Ruth B. Turner. Um, in terms of projects, uh, there's, uh, I'm involved in tons of projects. They just happen to be, you know, specific organizational uh, projects that are not necessarily uh, open to the, uh, to the public, mm -hmm. but, but that's a great way to, uh, to get a hold of me or interact with me. And I want to thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to spend this time with you this morning. I really, really appreciate it. Excellent. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Thank you for joining Nice TESOL's Shifting Teaching Paradigms podcast. Tune in next month for more powerful TESOL educator talk.